You're listening to the Sports Therapy Association podcast, putting evidence back into soft tissue therapy. Hey people, how are you doing? Welcome to episode 157 of the Sports Therapy Association podcast. My name is Matt Phillips, creator of runchatlive.com. And as always, this episode is being recorded at 8 o'clock on a Tuesday night at the Sports Therapy Association YouTube channel. Um, so if you're listening to the podcast and you like the idea of actually joining us live, so you can ask our guests questions directly <clears throat> and you can hang out with everybody who comes along and sits in the live lounge, then all you need to do is go along to the Sports Therapy Association YouTube channel at 8 o'clock on a Tuesday. We've been there for the last 157 weeks now. And um, it's, it's a lovely opportunity to hang out with other soft tissue therapists and even meet people if you're in the UK who are in your region and just network. Um, if you do come into the live lounge and I can bring up your questions and comments onto the screen, for example, Glenn Murphy, I love that photo, Glenn, so stoic. Glenn Murphy says, good evening. Hey, Glenn, thanks for joining us. Um, so, yeah, it's a nice way of networking as well, because if you come in and you comment, then we can bring up your logo on the screen, which is a nice little kind of you know, way of networking and getting your your logo out there. Soma, Penny from Soma Sports Massage Therapy is here as well. Says, good evening, everyone. Hey, Penny, how you doing? Hope you're well. Um, and so on. So people are coming in. So lovely. If, if you're listening to the podcast because this time doesn't fit in with your life, and that's lovely. Thank you very much. But if you'd be so kind to return the favour of the great word, which I'll get out there for free, um, just give us a good rating and give us a nice little comment, particularly on Apple Podcasts, because that is what makes the podcast appear high in Google. Simple as that. Um, just taking that minute on, especially on an iPhone, you've just got to press that button, leave a review and then get on with your day. So I plead with you to do that. Um, we get like 3000 plus downloads and I haven't got 3000 reviews yet. So some of you are kind of letting me down, but I don't want to bring you down. Just, you know, you've been told. Right. Gary Benson, founder of the, uh, founder of the STA is in the house as well. Um, so due to popular demand, what are we doing tonight? Well, I know it's focused on chat GPT this month. And we did have an episode last week uh, where we looked at how chat GPT can be embraced um, despite the fears. Um, it can actually bring down quite a lot of admin um, if you're looking at quick ways of creating forms and sending forms. And we looked at how it can actually it is actually paving the way for a future where we could cut down a lot of the time we spend on admin. And the episode is available on YouTube if you want to watch it. Um, I don't think it's up as a podcast yet. Kids nearly on half term. What I'm going to do. But um, if you do want to listen to it, if you listen to this, actually, by the time you listen to this, then it will be available as a podcast. Uh, but if you uh, want to see the video, then just go on to Sports Therapy Association YouTube channel. So um, this week, due to popular demand, uh, there was a lot more. Oh, please, you want some more nutrition? Nutrition was really good. And of course, it's such a big topic. Um, but I listened. And as always, I delivered. And shortly, we are going to be joined by registered sports nutritionist Faye Townsend, who's going to be discussing her top five sports nutrition myths. Something I asked for. Normally, you know, I'm not a fan of the word myth because it kind of makes people listening thinking that it's all fairy tales. And it's like saying that there's, I don't know, fairies at the bottom of my garden. I prefer misconceptions. But in nutrition, there are so many myths. I mean, there's not another word for it. Some of them are diabolical. Um, so, yes, I'm really glad that Faye has taken the challenge on and she's going to be providing us with her top five sports nutrition myths in order to help you help your clients fuel themselves for optimum performance. That's what it says on the tin. And um, just a reminder, if the topic of nutrition is of interest to you, 
then be sure to check out uh, the wonderful people we had last month. So in episode 152, we had eating disorders with special guest Nick Pollard, who's director of Family Mental Wealth and co-author of the Oxford Specialist Handbook on Eating Disorders. Um, there's also a discount code for the Eating Disorders e-learning for health professionals course. Uh, go to the show notes in that episode, which are available on YouTube and also Podbean and also at the STA.co.uk if you're interested in that discount. Um, in 153, we spoke with special guest Lucy Gilbanks about relative energy deficiency in sport, shortened down to reds. Um, Lucy is an excellent national light rower athlete and a researcher of reds as a result, particularly due to her experiences while she was competing internationally. A fantastic episode um, and hopefully touch wood. I'm 99% sure that Lucy is going to be coming along to talk at Therapy Expo in the Sports Therapy Association Theatre this year in November. Of course, we have full details of that closer to the time. And then in episode 154, um, the gut microbiome. So it was all about gut health with special guest Dr. Lucy Williamson who's an award-winning registered nutritionist and ambassador for Love British Food, who has a gut health online course, uh, which is well worth checking out. And again, if you're interested in that, have a look at the show notes, which are at the normal places. Also, 99% sure that Lucy Williamson will be joining us in the STA Theatre in at the Birmingham NEC this November as well for Therapy Expo. So a few people have been emailing in going, oh, at Therapy Expo? We will release um, a programme very soon. Uh, 15 wonderful guests this year. I've uh, just got to get it finalised and we'll be running them on the Wednesday and the Thursday at the NEC again, as we had did in the last couple of years. Right. Um, I was worried that uh, Faye was going to go then. It's been about 10 minutes I'm talking, but she's still there. Fantastic. Very patient. So uh, without further ado, um, we will now bring up registered sports nutritionist Faye Townsend. You're listening to the Sports Therapy Association podcast, putting evidence back into soft tissue therapy. Hey, Faye, how are you doing? Hello, I'm good, thank you. What, a, what an introduction. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry to leave you there so long, but it's such a great topic and people were really appreciative of, of, of the last three guests we had and they were very excited, especially with sports nutrition um, as being your speciality so thank you for joining us that's okay no it's good to be here so um for people who aren't aware of you um, mm -hmm. they could go to fay.nutrition on instagram that's a pretty good place to get to know you um and also you've got a website faytownsend.com um, where you can find some information as well but maybe you could tell us um how you got involved in nutrition and maybe what your daily um work involves of course. God, this is a, a good question to kind of reflect back on. And I feel like a lot of people have like a really amazing story about how they got into their career. Um, I don't think I necessarily have that, but I think growing up, I was always brought up in a very kind of health conscious family. Like my my dad and my mum really encouraged me to kind of participate in every single sport possible. And whilst I wasn't an elite athlete like Lucy was, um, I really enjoyed and I'm, I'm, I'm a very competitive person as well. So I really wanted to kind of become the best possible sports person that I could when I was growing up as well so I guess that naturally led me into the field of health and nutrition so I did my my first degree kind of straight from school so I did a BSc in nutrition um, and I think nutrition is something that 
unfortunately you can't just learn in like a weekend course because nutrition is a science and it kind of it's not just about simply writing a meal plan or telling someone what to eat I think it involves kind of biochemistry physiology psychology behavior change and everything else that comes with it as well so I did my BSc in nutrition and that degree was um, accredited by someone called the Association for Nutrition so that's like a protected body and so once you do a degree that's accredited by them you become a registered associate nutritionist and I think it's a bit like we were having this conversation before where um, I think it's the same with sports therapy where everyone anyone can call themselves a therapist a sports therapist and it's the same with nutrition as well like nutrition is not a protected title but if you do a degree that's accredited by the AFM then you have the registered nutritionist status so I started off with just like general nutrition and kind of from uni, I went into kind of diabetes prevention, weight management side of things. But there was always that little niggle that was like, you know what, Faye, actually, your passion lies with sport and performance. So I then went back to uni and did a postgrad degree in sports nutrition um, at Leeds Beckett as well. So I've been doing the sports nutrition as a bit more of a focus for the last few years as well. So that's kind of where I am today. Um, in terms of my day to day, so I have like a I run consultant a consultancy. So I do one on one consults with I say athletes, but I think athlete is a term that I use for anybody that has a performance related goal. So it could be someone that's training for the first 5K or even trying to get a PB within the gym. Or it could be an elite athlete as well. So I kind of work with people across the full spectrum, really. And yeah, I do one on one consultations and kind of like online coaching with those people as well. Fantastic. And yeah, it's interesting what you say. We were having a little chat before. It's, it's this common ground. We mentioned this before with a couple of the other guests where, yeah, it must be annoying for you who's been through the degree and the master's that, yeah, anybody can open up their shop front tomorrow and call themselves nutritionist and start selling and advertising themselves. Um, but you did say then you, you said that if people are interested in, in checking that qualification, then you can look at the awarding bodies. What was the first one you said again? So the first one, the general nutrition it is under the Association for Nutrition. And okay. then my postgrad degree was under the BDA, which is the British Diastetics Association. And part of the BDA um, is SENR. So the Sports and Exercise Nutrition really? Register. I realize there's a lot of things there, but I would just say that if you're looking for um, a nutritionist in general, then the AFN is great for that. But ultimately, like when I was working as a like within general nutrition, weight management, type 2 diabetes, I was getting people coming to me and was like, oh, Faye, could you help me with sport? And I was just like, I could, but actually I'm not really accredited to do that, which actually was another driver for me to kind of go back to uni and get that additional degree just so I didn't you know, have that imposter syndrome. And also just to learn a lot more and a lot more of the physiology of sports nutrition as well which is where that second degree was accredited by the BDN SENR. So, yeah, if you're looking for a sports nutritionist, look out for SENR. So, yeah, sports and exercise register nutrition. That's really useful because I think some therapists, I mean, I think all therapists need to be linked with a nutritionist because a lot of the clients that we see are going to be sharing. It's all part of that multidisciplinary care because if someone's coming and getting injured, then we know that runners, for example, you know, one of the factors which is more likely to cause runners' injury is being overweight. It's as simple as that. I mean, and if you can lose some weight, then great because it's going to stop you from getting injured so much, but not that easy to lose weight, not just like just like that. So 
I think it's useful to throw this out there because you could be making relationships with somebody who really doesn't know their staff and then that's mm. going to look badly on you so yeah do you work with therapists as well do you find that you're referring and getting people to and fro depending on yeah I mean that's what or... I was going to say like like you said that as a, as a professional in sport or just in health in general you, you should never work in isolation because you've got to I guess stick within your remit of kind of what your expertise and knowledge is and having those people around you that you can refer to is just so important. So, yeah, I have people that I refer to physios, like sports therapists, psychologists, dietitians as well. I think it's just so important that, yeah, you have that duty of care to offer your patient or your client or athlete with the right care and then refer out when it's appropriate. So, yeah, I have yeah, lots of different connections there. That's great to hear. And, and one of the constant themes on this show has been, for, for massage therapists, sports therapists, whatever you do, if you're on the kind of an evidence-informed page, then suddenly your circle of referrals, people sending people to you and you sending people to others will grow so much. And it makes sense as a business model to get on that evidence-informed page and then you can talk the same language as the people around you. So that's good to hear. Um, I looked on your website. There was a few things that made me think oh I want to ask her a question about that and um, one of them I saw so you ready this is all unless you've got chat GPT to write it for you I don't know but um, this is all no, we're going to see that website was created quite a while ago I was just saying in before we kind of went live that there's a few updates that I needed on there but it still gives the general gist <laughs> fantastic uh right so yeah we had and I know it's, no, it's really really lovely and it's one of the things it says is um blah, 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 blah. As a sports nutritionist, aim is to help guide, support, and encourage you in the right direction towards optimal nutrition, health, and performance. Great. As a strong believer in positive nutrition, bam, I thought, right, what is positive nutrition? Oh, good question. And I think this might also, I know that you had a guest on recently that talked about like eating disorders and disordered eating as well. And this is kind of where that comes into because. Again, when I was doing my first degree in nutrition, we had modules in psychology and actually that made me realize how closely connected our mindset and our eating behaviors are. And again, when I was working in general nutrition and actually even more so now that I'm working in sport as well, I'm seeing more and more cases of people with disordered eating coming into the clinic. Um, so positive nutrition is all about what can we add to the diet rather than take away? How can we think about what nutrients, nourishment can we add rather than focusing on restriction? So, yeah, it's fostering that positive relationship with food as opposed to feeling like, yeah, we're living a life and we're eating in a way that impacts other areas of our life, like our social life, our, our mental well-being as well. That's really interesting. And, and every time you mention the kind of psychology behind it, the behaviour change, it ties in so well to what we've heard so far. Yeah, it was Nick Pollard who was talking about disordered eating and eating disorders um, and obviously a lot to do with this, the psychological aspects of it. Um, and then um, Lucy Gilbanks as well with the Reds, with competitive athletes who are just, they all know that they're all living in hell, but they just think this is the way we've got to do it. You know, yeah. they put it up with it because it's just and no one interrupts. So yeah. then also we've had a guest a few times, Dr. Gary Mendoza, who uh, started off in nutrition and. Um, He's a professor of nutrition, but then he actually got into behavior change as part of that and studied motivational interviewing. And now he runs a very successful business to do with motivational interviewing because he just realizes that not just with nutrition, but with anything, if that client isn't on the right 
place to make that behavioural change you're suggesting, then you're just kind of washing out these words, which may be great. So exactly no I really admire him and I think as well like people think that athletes are these superhuman people but they're they're still humans at the end of the day they still have other commitments and other priorities and pressures from other areas of their life as well and their nutrition's got to work around that um so yeah it can't nutrition can't completely take over their life really interesting and people listening just to fill you in in case you haven't listened to it yet one of the things that I took as a real takeaway um, from the uh, interview with Lucy Gilbanks was her research, and she didn't even expect it, but when she started doing basically telecalls with ex-international light rowers, lightweight rowers, um, she started realising that what they were talking about could easily be divided into the physiological symptoms and issues and then the psychosocial issues. And she started realising that it's actually the psychosocial issues which these people are carrying around them and destroying their lives mm. rather than just the physiological stuff. Being, not being able to socialise, go out and eat, having to go to the bathroom every time you've had some food, um, taking all sorts of medication. You know, it's very, very interesting. So like you say, even if they're a top athlete, um, they are people underneath and they're going to have these things going on. Great. Well, you're fitting in fantastically to the episodes we've had so far. This is a pleasure. Sounds like you've got a lot of aligned <laughs> people coming on the podcast. <laughs> no, it's great. Once again, this is really cool. I'm really looking forward to it. So with that said and done, um, really positive. I'm looking forward then to, I mean, I challenged you and said, you know what I'd really like, because nutrition is such a diverse kind of loads of things going on. Every week there's something new coming out, like the new Samsung, which now bends in half. It's just, I watch it and think, what are they going to do next the phone? You know, like a book that opens up four ways. It's just everything that's new has got a sell, isn't it? So I challenge you to the five top myths that you see in here with clients um, with regards to sports and nutrition. Mm-hmm. You kindly accepted. Um, so I think what we could do is we could start getting into those five. Um, people listening, obviously, if you're in the live lounge, if you want to jump in with any questions, and I've given Faye as always uh, permission just to launch and say oh gary's got a quick question there or penny has so feel free to write answer questions write questions if you want to people but there we go faye townsend let's start in no particular well you could save the biggest thing which frustrates you maybe to the end just to create a bit of a hook okay. let's choose one of the other ones what have we got okay um well something that i'm seen a lot in clinic at the moment is i mean the majority of kind of athletes that i work with do tend to be like runners in like ultra endurance athletes um i say ultra endurance but you've also people like running half marathon marathon that side of things as well some a common pattern that i'm seeing at the moment is around fasted training so going into their a lot of people will run in the morning and i'm seeing a lot of people using that training session as a way to lose weight so i guess the myth that i wanted to start with is that fastest tra- fasted training will help you lose weight um so like i said this is something that i'm seeing time and time again and there can be multiple reasons why people are maybe doing this it might be again that belief that they feel like fasted training is going to cause them to lose weight but it could I'm just also going to jump in there a second i mean my wife's from wigan so i get fasted is is i get it straight away so i'm not criticizing your accent but if anybody kind of south of Watford we're talking about fasting okay I can hear Gary there going what's she talking about what's this, what's this? And he's yeah, a sorry, I'm from Yorkshire. So, yeah no that's if fine I get it I'm just, <laughs> I'm just conscious that people are thinking faster what yeah. running faster no all right so we're talking about fasting that's great fast. I wasn't I was I was going, yeah. fast, fast, fasting. <laughs> fasting, fasting. <Yeah. laughs> 
anyway, so basically right. training on an empty stomach. So going for go. that run, going for that training session without eating anything before. And there can be a number of reasons why people are doing this. I'm seeing it because people are seeing it as a weight loss strategy that they 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 believe that ultimately that if they train fasted, they'll burn more fat. Some people just physically can't stomach it in the morning and other people might be rolling out of bed five minutes before they go on the run. So it's more of a scheduling thing. But I just wanted to touch on actually the belief of the if you train on an empty stomach, that it will cause weight loss. Um, And I guess, yeah, I want to debunk this a little bit because there's a lot of possible benefits that might come from fasted training around performance. And then there's some proposed benefits that might come around like the body composition side but maybe if we think about the performance potential performance benefits first so there's this kind of intriguing possibility that if you train low so what I mean by training low is you train with low carbohydrate stores so in your body you have stores of carbohydrate these are called glycogen but we have a limited store of these glycogen in the body so the idea is that by training low, you'll have low levels of those glycogen levels. And I'll come on to the science behind that in a little while. But just for context, when we're talking about our fuel sources during exercise, so when you're exercising, you have two main fuel sources, you have your carbohydrate stores, so your glycogen, and you have your fat stores. And you'll be using both of these different stores at all times, but there'll be one that's you know, dominating over the other. And this comes down to the intensity of the exercise that you're doing. So when you're doing your low intensity exercise, so going out for a steady steady jog, going out for a walk, your body will use your fats as your main energy source because this process of breaking down fats into energy is much slower. So your, your body can keep up the demands of that. And then as soon as the intensity increases, your body kind of switches or starts to prioritize using your carbohydrate stores as your main fuel source because that is a more rapidly available energy source ultimately so the idea is that if you train with your low carbohydrate stores because they are a limiting factor for you your body will adapt to utilizing or using up your fat stores as your energy source so you can you might be able to see the benefit there for people that are maybe doing like ultra endurance events where they've got this big reservoir of fat that they can keep tapping into, but they have this limited store of carbohydrate. So if they can become better at utilizing their fat stores, there could be performance benefits there. So that is only really within that population group, though. And even there, the studies and the research around that are limiting that even though you might become better adapted at using your fats as your energy source, actually, that might doesn't really seem to reflect in your actual performance levels. So that's one thing. So that's maybe where the bit of the science and the bit of the belief around fasted training comes from. But the thing is, when it comes to high intensity exercise, what I'm seeing a lot in clinic is people going for like sprint training interval training where their intensity is really high but they're still fast they're still fasting beforehand but because of that high intensity your body is not going to be using fats at all so really you're just limiting your performance there because you're not giving yourself the carbohydrates and your body can't use the fats for the energy source because it's just not quick enough to for it to use it so yeah, I would say fasted training for performance, maybe it could be used in the really low intensity exercises. In other areas, there's really no benefits and actually it could compromise your performance, if anything. 
And then when it comes to the fat, sorry, I realize I'm talking quite a lot here. This is great. Keep going. But when it comes to fat loss, again, there's that belief that, oh, if I'm utilizing, if I'm burning more fats for energy, that must mean that I'm going to burn my body fat. But actually, the two aren't the same. Fat, using your fats as your as your energy source, so we call that fat utilization or fat oxidation, doesn't equate to a reduction in body fat. That comes from a total calorie, a total energy deficit. And when it comes to any weight loss diet, they all like whether it's keto, whether it's fasted training, whether it's intermittent fasting, whatever the diet is, there's no magic pill for any of them. The reason why they all help you lose weight is because they all put you in a calorie deficit. There's no magic science to it, really. And there's actually studies to show that if the if, let's say you had a population group that was fasted training or doing intermittent fasting or something, and you just had one that was in a calorie controlled and they both consumed the same amount of calories, there would be no difference in the outcome. So it's all about what the total calorie intake is over the course of the day that leads to weight loss rather than if you're doing fasted training or not. So hopefully that answers that question. That's amazing. That's really, really good. Yeah, I'm interested. I was, I was thinking, mate, they should be able to do a study where they are having the fasted, I'm going to say fasted, the fasted training compared to non-fasted and just making sure that I know, you know, in the day the calorie intake's the same and just see whether there is a difference. And as like you say, that's, those, those studies exist and it doesn't yeah. make a difference. It's, if anything, um, actually, I was just going to say on that, from what I'm seeing in clinic as well, is that for the people that are doing fasted training at the moment, so, um, I mean, I had someone recently where they were fasted, so they were fast going into their training session, maybe afterwards only having something like a protein shake and not really eating a meal until two o'clock. And then, like, not really understanding why in the evening they have excessive hunger and they're wanting to binge. So actually what I'm seeing is that... causes their calorie intake to be much higher than maybe if they fuel themselves sufficiently in the beginning of the day as well. Um, I don't have research on that. That's just kind of my experience of it in clinic. Yeah, very interesting. And I guess as always, because I know people and I've treated people who swear by the fasted um, way of going through and they don't eat until one o'clock and it's always on an empty stomach. And for a certain population, for some reason, it may well work. Obviously, the people who kind of celebrate and get results, but as a, as always, it might not be for the reasons which they, you know, have read. It probably is because they've managed to find a behaviour change which they can hold up and keep going, and mm. ultimately they're, they're eating less during the whole day and during the week. Yeah. So, but yeah, don't get me wrong. Like there is population groups where this might really work for them. Like if they're not a breakfast person and actually they don't feel massively hungry until mid morning or whatever. And they're finding that when they do have that first meal, they feel like they're eating in, in a manageable way, mindful way. They're not overindulging. Then if that works for them, that is amazing. But what I would say, if you are someone that's looking for performance benefits, then any athlete that is trying to optimize their performance, it's really not something that I would recommend if you are really serious about that goal. Fantastic. What you were talking about, I also thought as well, and it's another topic completely, but you kind of mentioned after the workout, they might have a shake or something. What, and again, it might vary per person. What is your recommendation after, during that window of finishing exercise, what should you be trying to, to, to reach in terms Good of protein and carbs? And this actually comes on to my second myth, um, oh, which I guess leads me nicely into there, that 
again, one of the things that I see a lot, I mean, this one, the, the reason this sparked my me bringing this myth into it is because this is something that I see on social media all the time around how protein is all you need in order to recover from a from a session. And don't get me wrong, like protein is a really important macronutrient to support that recovery process, whether you're running, I mean, or whether you're weight training, whatever the exercise will be, there'll be a a degree of muscle tearing, kind of muscle fiber tearing. And ultimately, we need that protein, that substrate to help start that rebuilding process. So protein is really essential. And it is probably, you know, one of the top kind of recovery ingredients that we need but it's not the only thing that we need because I guess what I see on social media is like people yeah down in a protein shake after their workout and then thinking that's enough and that's all that they need in order to kind of get through and recover um but actually as well as protein which I can go into more depth around the protein element but we also need carbohydrates we need hydration we need our micronutrients as well I think carbohydrates in general just get a really bad reputation, but actually they're so essential when it comes to health, but even more so when it comes to performance as well. Because let's say you've gone for that run, those carbohydrate stores are going to be depleted. Everyone is quite different depending on like the duration and the intensity of exercise, but we tend to have enough carbohydrate in in those glycogens to last us about 90 minutes of running. So if you think about it, if you're going for a run and you've depleted through all that carbohydrate, then you need to replace that afterwards as well. So a post-workout, we need a nice quality source of protein. We need some carbohydrates to help with that resynthesis, that kind of rebuilding that like glycogen store that we have. But then we also need things like hydration as well. Like when you're running or doing any form of exercise, you're going to be sweating as well. So making sure that we replace any fluid loss as well as electrolytes as well, because when you're sweating, you don't just lose fluid and water, you lose things like sodium and potassium as well. So I like to think of it as the the three R's, which is quite a nice way to remember it. So we kind of replenish with our carbohydrates, we recover with our protein, and we rehydrate with our fluids so thinking of a meal that kind of combines all those things so if it's like more of like a breakfast option you might have some oats with some some cow's milk or if you are choosing dairy milk you might want to pop in some whey protein there to get some some protein sauce or something it could be like a bagel with some smoked salmon or something or eggs with some micronutrients and then some water as well alongside it so yeah hopefully that gives you a bit of an idea fantastic yeah yeah so getting that variance getting that variety and mixture of things i remember i don't know whether it's it's been commented on since but probably about 10 years ago i think there was a study on chocolate milk i mean it got overtaken mm. these days by peach juice but chocolate milk i think was quite a good study which i yeah. used in presentations because it's got that mixture of the protein and the carbohydrates and the fluid is that still well. something is it still quite a nice as a recovery drink yeah, absolutely. One of my go-to go-to suggestions Good. for people. Yeah, because it hits those three R's, like replenish, rehydrate and recover as well. Um, absolutely. I can see that Gary's got a question. Yes, it ties in nicely. Products. Yeah. Let's bring this up. I'll read it out for people listening to the podcast. So Gary Benson, founder of the STA, has said, what is your opinion on sports nutrition products, drinks, gels, shakes, protein cookies and bars, etc.? I historically worked with endurance athletes and found them a useful addition to proper food. And he continues in part two, but increased digestive problems when taken in excess or in isolation. Mm, Yeah, 
Absolutely. I mean, I'm all about encouraging a food first approach wherever possible. Um, so encouraging athletes to get their protein requirements, their carb requirements from whole foods as much as possible. But actually, with a lot of athletes, their, their demands and their requirements are much higher than the general population because there's that additional added stress on the body um, when they are exercising at a higher intensity. And yeah, meeting their requirements from Whole Foods alone can be quite difficult. Um, so yeah, I there are sports products that I would recommend um, for people as a convenient, quick way to get it in. Um, so yeah, there's some I would recommend, there's some I wouldn't. I would when I'm working with elite athletes, especially something that we've got to be really careful of is making sure that we're choosing products that have been batch tested. And there's a logo that you can look out for called Inform Sport. And that helps to minimize the risk of contamination of things like illegal substances. I'm sure you've probably seen it in the news a lot um, recently and over over the over many, many years of athletes getting pulled out for having illegal substances in their blood. So yeah, it's just we want to minimize that risk by having these products batch tested. Um what was the other question as well? Digestive problems. Yeah, so I do see that. Um, because I mean, there could be a number of different reasons. It might be intolerances to things like whey, um, de- like lactose intolerance. Um, but also some of these products are quite high in things like sweeteners, um, which I know for some people, if they have in quite high doses, that can cause some digestive issues as well. Um, so yeah, I'd always work with the athlete depending on what sits well with them. But it is possible to get a lot of this thing from the whole foods. Um, but yeah, whey protein is a very well-researched product. That's great. Great answer. Good question, Gary. Um, ask a follow-up if you wish. Um, yeah, and also what comes to mind with me with runners is, because runners are so, I mean, you run a lot yourself, yeah? I think I've seen from Instagram, you love it, right? It's good. Um, Runners love something new and they always think of what the person next to them is taking is going to be the answer. What's he got in his belt? Oh my God, look at those gels. Oh really? Yeah. They've got the next, they've got the next kind of uh, station. Oh, I'm going to grab one of them. And they've never had it before. And again, they don't realize that just the same as that shoe might not work on your foot, that gel might not work in your stomach. And the number of times we see runners, and I'm sure you've heard of them as well, who've done a race and suddenly taken something new because their friends said, these work really well. I have one of those. And then they've been out of all orifices on the side of the race. So, I guess, again, it's just pe- different things work with different people's, you know. Absolutely. One of my biggest, biggest things that I work with clients on is that we want to make sure that you don't try anything new on race day because you have no idea how a food's going to react with you. Like as you're if let's say you're training for a marathon, like as you're training your muscles and your aerobic system in order to run the marathon, you've got to train your gut, too, because, yeah, eating and taking fluid whilst running can cause havoc on the gut so it is something that you need to build and train in order to get used to it as well so yeah when I'm working with clients I'll go through a process of making sure that we trial everything out during their training phase so then when they go into the competition they're not trying anything new and they have confidence that what they're trying is going to sit well with them brilliant okay thank you for this right I'm gonna I've got yeah let's get a question We've got a male versus female question here, which I'm always keen to bring up. So, Catherine, I'm good to see you. Catherine, how are you doing? Catherine says, hi, Matt and Faye. I heard something a while ago, and I can't remember where, but I heard that before training, men should eat carbs and protein, and women should eat carbs and good fats. No, I mean, I haven't come across anything like that before. I mean, what I would say is that women, we're coming back to the fasted training thing. 
women are actually at a higher risk of developing consequences of fasted training. I mean, our as a woman, our physiology, and um, we do have a higher risk of things like energy imbalances through fasted training, high levels of cortisol, so stress hormones that can come off the back of doing fasted training as well. So men have, it's very important for men too but it's even more important for women to make sure that they're not faster training so they're getting the carbs in there carbs in particular beforehand there is some research to show that both men and women could benefit from having a little bit of protein before as well just to help kick start that muscle protein synthesis for afterwards as well but i would actually encourage people to focus their pre-workout snack or meal predominantly on the carbohydrates having a little bit of fat and a little bit of protein Protein. You probably don't want to have too much fat pre-workout, because, especially if you're eating quite close to your workout, because fats are very hard for the body to digest. Um, so if you're having it too close to exercise, you might experience some gut issues there. And also it could compromise your ability to utilize your carbohydrates a little bit more as well. So I'm not I'm not from what I've read. I'm not aware of any differences for men and women pre-workout. That's great. Great question, Catherine. Thought you're going to catch off out. No, 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 no. She knows everything off it. That's great. No, really good question. Thanks, Catherine, for that. Um, let's do one more and then we'll go to your next um, myth. Jamie. Hey, Jamie, how you doing? From jamiegoggit.com. Says, Faye, hello. Do you have a view on eating for recovery from injury as an in extra protein, etc.? Mm, yeah, so I've worked with quite a few people. Um, something I see a lot in clinic is people recovering from injuries of many types. It depends on the injury, really. But yeah, definitely protein is an essential nutrient when it comes to things like ligament repair, tendon repair, things like that. Um, what I, what I do notice is that people often feel like if they've got an injury and it's causing them to be maybe be a little bit more immobile, I see people drastically cutting their calories and their energy. But actually, that's not really the best thing to be doing because the recovery process is actually quite an energy demanding process. And actually, you need more energy than probably what you think. So, yes, reducing your calories a little bit because you are probably less mobile, but not to the extent that you might think keeping that protein very high to help with, again, potential, well, reducing the risk of any muscle wastage. Um, So that could be one thing as well. There's a little bit of research coming around about like collagen um, um, and things like tendon and ligaments as well. Um, And then, yes, the basics of kind of making sure that you're still getting essential carbohydrates in there, micronutrients, vitamin D, calcium in particular, especially if it's maybe more of like a bone or a fracture injury as well. So yeah, that's a that could be a whole podcast on itself. That definitely. Good question, though, Jamie. That's a very good question. And again, I think I'm listening to you and thinking again, it's the behaviour change, isn't it? When the one thing which well, one of the huge things is going to change when you're injured is your whole psyche is going to be. You know, you, we've talked about it before. How for some people it's like you're in a mourning kind of moment. It's mm. like someone's died because you've taken away, especially runners. You're now not a runner anymore. You can't yeah, go on Strava anymore. It's, yeah, so that could well, if you change your behavior, that could well change your diet either way. You could get yeah. suddenly repressing yourself or suddenly binge eating. So, Absolutely. There's a lot, a lot of psychology work that goes into that as well and kind of reframing it in a way to think that, okay, if you focus, really focus on your nutrition now, you're going to be in a much better position to get back to exercising much quicker as well and prevent this from happening in the future as well. So, yeah, a lot of behaviour change, mindset work that often goes on during that recovery process. 
Sounds like a really good question just to add. I mean, I've changed the size of Park Hughes for our therapists from like a few questions to rolls of toilet paper now. But one of the other important questions, as well as everything we've talked about, is probably going to be, how are you eating? You know, and then follow it up with, why are you doing that? Just to uncover these beliefs and misconceptions, because it's going to fit in with their recovery, you know, if, if they are suddenly holding back on calories or binge eating, and mm. especially if they believe something. So very important question, I guess. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, even outside of recovery as well, I using a food diary is often a tool that I will use with clients. And I think people often think that food diaries are just simply about tracking their calories and tracking their macro, macros. But actually, the way in which I use food diaries is helping them start to understand, like you said, that why behind it, the patterns, their triggers for eating, because yeah, we eat for so many different reasons. We don't just eat for our physical hunger. And if we can understand the thought process, the environment, the beliefs, all those things around it, that can give us a much more meaningful approach to take and we can really tailor it to their circumstance that they're going through. Brilliant, really good. Okay, right, so we've talked about um, training on an empty stomach. That was the first one you mentioned. That rolled in nicely into um, thinking that proteins all you need for recovery. Number three. Number three. This is more so for any runners out there. Um, I have quite a lot of marathon athletes. Um, people train for things like London Marathon, Berlin Marathon, things like that. Um, and something that a topic that comes up a lot is carb loading. But the myth that I see around carb loading is that people think that they just need to eat a big bowl of pasta, eat as much carbohydrates as possible the day before, and that that is what they need to do in order to carb load. Um, so yeah, let's let's debunk that one a little bit. Um, just for I guess a little bit of context in terms of carb loading, I, I'm, I'm not sure if anybody's heard of this before, but it, if it's helpful, I can kind of go through exactly what carbohydrate loading is. Yeah, mentioned um, it basically. Yeah. Cool. Um, so, yeah, just very briefly, as I was mentioning before, when we're, let's say, running, we only have a limited store of carbohydrates. So, probably about 90 minutes, let's say, of running before that carbohydrate store kind of runs out. And you've probably heard the phrase hitting the wall. And that is when runners, cyclists, whatever the endurance athlete is, that's when pretty much they're glycogen or their carbohydrate stores are depleted so a strategy or a tool that we can use to help delay that from happening is carbohydrate loading so in the period running up to your race you basically really top up those glycogen those carbohydrate stores you take them above and beyond so you super compensate them so that you're going into that event with those carbohydrate stores as full as they could possibly be um, but as i said before often what i see is people just loading up as much carbohydrates and as much food as possible the day before um, but yeah the misconception is that actually it's not just about eating as much as possible it's just switching your proportions of your food intake around so prioritizing more of your plate or more of your diet towards carbohydrates in particular the simple carbohydrates so your white flours your white bread your white pasta as opposed to the whole grains because those whole grains are really rich in fiber and you're going to feel very full very quick from eating that which generally is you know a beneficial thing but inside this context we want to be thinking how can we kind of really top up those stores without feeling full and um, so yeah switching your proportions around so you're prioritizing the carbohydrates and then reducing your proteins and your fats a little bit for 
36 to 48 hours before. So it's not just about loading up and trying to eat as much as possible because that's going to make you feel very uncomfortable going into that race. It could also lead to a little bit of weight gain before going into the race as well, which is probably not what you want. So it's just simply switching the proportions around a little bit. So you're prioritizing the carbohydrates, maybe adding in some carbohydrate snacks as well, instead of maybe like protein, fiber, uh, fat ones. Great advice. And I'm sure something which a lot of people out there work with runners in particular um, hear about when you're helping a runner that comes through injury and then it comes to have some advice, please, for my evening before the race. So if you're telling them, yeah, just do as much pasta as you can, yeah. you could be yeah. Yeah, taking them to a disaster. If anything, about another thing? Oh, go ahead, sorry. No, no, you go first. I was That's just it. going to say, if anything, the morning of the race and the night before are really just topping up that level. Most of the carb loading should have happened, like I said, the two to three days before. Mm. And actually the night before, you don't want to be eating too much because that could compromise your sleep and therefore you won't perform as well the next day. And yeah, the morning is again, just that opportunity to top it up a little bit. So actually that time is not the time to be absolutely loading up. Um, if anything, that's just, you know, sipping, you know, like I said, topping up those final bits. Brilliant. Yeah, that's great clarification. You mentioned, so yeah, so loading, maybe looking at your changing the proportions three days before the race, rather than just suddenly the night before going to zizzies and having five pizzas. Yeah, brilliant. Okay, or any pizza restaurant. What about in the morning? Because the other thing which annoyed me, well, made me question traditional planning for race day is this idea that you need to have breakfast kind of three hours before race time. Um, so it's digest properly. But then you've got people getting up at six in the morning or something, to, especially if they're traveling to the marathon, which will happen quite a lot. And that has got to have negative effects as well. You're not going to be getting as much sleep as you need. What's the deal with nutrition and timing before, let's say, a marathon or something? Good question. And again, it really it's really down to the person in terms of what their digestion system is like. Um, but typically, if you're having a larger meal, it will probably take around two, three hours in order for that to digest. And you don't want that kind of all that food mass sitting in your gut whilst you're running as well. So, yeah, it might be that on marathon day you do have to get up slightly earlier. But I think that just shows the importance of making sure that the night before you're not eating too late and you're getting into bed earlier as well. Don't get me wrong. I have some people that could probably eat an hour before and be fine. But for the majority of people, if you're having a larger meal, two to three hours is probably a good time to aim for. And then topping up maybe an hour before on a smaller carbohydrate snack to kind of make you feel ready ready to go into that race as well um yeah but yeah timings on on marathon day can be a a big big thing for people so making sure that you get to bed nice and early the night before is important if you will have those two to three hours in the morning i guess it's like the conversation about gels and things not trying anything new this is something which in theory you should have tried towards Definitely. the end of your you know your training routine before you start mm -hmm. tapering off just yeah. get up early and see how it works have that breakfast test it so nothing is new on 100% and even the carb loading process in general like I will if there's like a, a distance that they're close to before the marathon or that they're, they're doing like a half marathon or something in their training process we'll practice the carb loading in terms of the exact meals that they have their race day breakfast again so they're all familiar foods that they're going in with on actual marathon race day great advice um gary benson's written here one analogy i used to use for endurance athletes is to imagine fueling your car you start with a tank full for a long journey and you shouldn't wait until you are near empty to add fuel and following that up gary says 
Instead, add small amounts of fuel regularly to ensure you are topping up to a full tank so you don't run out. Yeah, love that analogy, one I use nice a lot analogy. as well. Fantastic. Nice one, Gary. So just a wise man. <laughs> um, fantastic. Right. Okay. Where are we? 8.48. Right. So uh, let's move on to number four. And then we can squeeze in number five as well. What's four? Five is going to be the top one, which really bugs you, isn't it? Really yeah. Yeah. Um, so number four, this, this one also bugs me quite a lot, um, okay. especially thinking about that positive nutrition is I see a lot that people say that simple sugars. So let's say you refined your white sugars are bad for you. Um, because I think that's just something that we've had drilled into us over and over again, that sugar is bad. Sugar is something that we should be avoiding. But actually, especially in the athletic or the athlete population, it's all about context. I think saying sugar is bad is really misleading because, yes, for those people that maybe aren't participating in, in sport, like having a more nutrient dense diet where maybe you're focusing on the complex carbohydrates so your high fiber carbohydrates over your sugars would be beneficial so getting most of your carbohydrates from those complex sources like whole grain bread grains legumes those types of things that would be beneficial but if you're performing at a at a high level so let's say we're going through that carb loading phase some of the research suggests that in that carb loading phase your requirements could be as high as 12 grams per kilogram of body weight. Um, don't ask me to do any quick maths now, but if you're, that could be like 700, 800 grams of carbohydrates to eat in one day. Um, so if you're trying to get that amount of carbohydrates purely from whole foods or like from your whole grains, that's going to be really difficult to eat that much fiber and get that much carbohydrate in there. Um, and also, if you're eating that much fiber as well, you're going to have some some gut issues going on, especially on race day as well. So given the kind of the high activity level of people training for a marathon and therefore kind of the, the calorie needs and the energy need and the, the carbohydrate needs, it makes sense to think of simple carbohydrates or simple sugars as part of their diet in order to help them meet their energy requirements. Because ultimately, meeting your energy requirements as an athlete is just as important for your health. Uh, talking about what Lucy talked about with relative energy deficiency, that's meeting your energy requirements with the support of simple carbohydrates. It's just important for your health as getting the nutrient-dense foods in there as well. Fascinating. Yeah. So simple sugars, not all bad. It's tricky, isn't it? Because again, the industry will take a pick each month or two months, whether it's fats you should be cutting out or whether mm. it's sugars you're cutting out or sometimes it's protein you should be cutting out, meat okay. should be cutting out. They just rotate through it, don't they? It's mm, tricky. Definitely. Everybody, every, the thing is, when it comes to nutrition, everybody wants this new exciting thing um everyone gets bored of the the typical general advice that probably people might me and you might give because it's not it's not fun it's not different it's not attractive um but it's it's what we have the science to back it up and yes it might not be a quick fix or anything but we know that's what people need in order to support their long-term health and performance it's the behavior isn't it it's, um people know what they've got to do reduce calorie intake but that is easier said than done so they need to speak to someone like yourself who can talk through the behaviors and give them information yeah. and find ways that you can change your own lifestyle bit by bit mm. amazing right i'm i'm gonna we can continue with the next myth 
people, if you want to keep asking questions, I'm going to see if I can get Faye back sometime because she seems so happy. She's looking at the questions, thinking, look, she's answering the next questions you're writing as, as she's talking to me, I can see. So keep firing those questions in there. I'm going to keep them. I'm going to store them in the comments and, and, and we'll see what we can do. Maybe we need a part two or something. So keep them coming. But we've been leading up to this top moment now. The biggest bug this month anyway for Faye Nutrition Faye Nutrition, yeah, Faye.Nutrition, Instagram, is is what? What's the thing which annoys you most of all? Um, so I guess this I don't, I, it might be a topic that um, Lucy spoke about a little bit as well. I think in relating to kind of relative energy deficiency and eating disorders is I'm seeing a lot of, again, runners, predominantly runners at the moment, come in with the goal of performance and wanted to get faster but feeling like in order to do that they need to change their diet to lose weight so there's that kind of belief that in order to be faster you've got to be smaller or you've got to be slimmer um i mean don't get me wrong if, if you're someone that's carrying kind of an excess of body weight then yes potentially losing a little bit of weight within reason could support your running performance but there's kind of a lot of things to consider here i mean firstly when we look at when we look at the body type of a runner when we look at those elite athletes when they're doing their marathon yes they do tend to have a certain body type but that's not to say that in order to be a runner you need to look like that like runners can come in all body shapes and sizes and yes we don't need to be having really long legs or really long limbs in order to do well and perform because ultimately actually in order to lose weight there's things that have to happen that could compromise your performance so in order to lose a weight where you're having to restrict your calorie intake or your carbohydrate intake or anything like that that comes at the cost of your performance ultimately because performance and body weight or body composition or body fat loss they don't really come hand in hand and um, it's very i mean they can there is ways in which you can still work on performance while working on your body composition but you're not going to be able to completely maximize your performance whilst being in a big calorie deficit as well and ultimately, like I know that Lucy probably spoke about this a lot as well, but when we're restricting our calorie intake, when we're restricting it quite a lot, your body only has, I mean, we, we call it like your energy availability side of things. So if you're not giving your body enough calories or enough energy in order to, you know, do all the lovely bodily function that it needs, things start to shut off a little bit. Like you can think of it as a bit like, um, you know, low battery power mode on your phone. So if you're not giving your body all the juice or the energy that it needs, it goes into battery saving mode, which means things start to shut off a little bit. I'm sure Lucy probably talked about that quite a lot with you. But that can lead to, you know, increased risk of injury, increased things like um, amenorrhea as well and um, so disruptions to the menstrual function testosterone within within men as well so there's so many different things that can come from being in a, an excessive calorie deficit so trying to lose weight so actually by focusing on being slimmer you could be massively impacting your performance rather than making it better um so yeah something i'm seeing a lot at the moment and actually what i'm trying to encourage people to do is maybe take take the focus away from trying to drop that number on the scale and actually focus, okay, how can we add nourishment to your diet in order to build strength, to build speed, to build agility? And what I tend to feel is people are much more positive and motivated in the long term when they focus more on the performance aspect rather than what that number on the scale says. 
brilliant. Amazing advice. Yeah, um, it's true, especially with runners. But again, people runners love looking at others, don't they? And there's going to be someone in your pack, in your club, who is tiny and skinny, and they're probably a great runner. And you automatically assume, well, if I'm going to do what they do, I need to be their weight. But you don't know the other training which they're doing. You don't even know they're happy to start off. They might be suffering all sorts of um, kind of illnesses and disorders. But you also don't know the other training they're doing to get to where they do. You'll try to just assume because they're small and skinny than they're going to be. That's the secret to success. So mm. brilliant observation. Just quickly then, what about the other way around? I guess probably particularly when you move down towards the recreational or across to the recreational end of athletes, then there are runners who may be, they do need to be directing their focus more to just losing some weight before they try and run a decent pace marathon. Um, do you see people like that as well? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think it's just the timing of the situation. Like if they're going through a really heavy training period, then that's probably not the time to focus on losing body fat. But if they're maybe, you know, at early phases or actually they're maybe considering doing a marathon, uh, but it's not something that they've signed up for yet, then that would be the time to do it. So kind of doing it in the off season rather than the high intensity season when the energy demands are a little bit lower. Um, because if you're trying to lose body fat when you're training a lot, then again, your risk of any, like low energy deficiency is going to be much higher. Reds is going to be much higher. Yeah, that's when we start seeing those stress fractures and tying it back to you know, diet, particularly, yeah. unfortunately, women, female athletes. Mm. right amazing look it's 8 57 that's absolutely zoomed by I really um, did, yeah. <laughs> we're not going to even touch the other three or four questions inside uh there i'm um, sorry people who are in the live lounge asking them because i think what would be quite nice at a later date maybe is is just putting some q and a's together you answered you've got such a wealth of information you answer so so meaningfully and quickly when the questions are put to you so that's something we can discuss off air but um for people who do want to well, first of all thank you again Faye, for coming on really appreciate no it problem. it's been great for people who do want to follow you and they like what they heard then instagram is the main source at the moment isn't it of information yeah so most of the information i put out is on instagram so yeah, just at fay.nutrition and there is a great load of information on there. Faye seems to be a popular name amongst nutritionists, I found out. Oh, really? So just, oh, yeah, just seem to be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> There's quite a few when you Google it. There's a lot of Faye's. I don't know what it is. But um, the, the most important Faye at the moment is Faye.nutrition. Don't Thank accept you. any um, <laughs> imposters. Um, and then also website, which currently undergoing some um, updates, but it's still worth checking out, definitely, is www.faytownsend, F-A-Y-E, Townsend, T-O-W-N-S-E-N-D.com. And, um, yeah, and like I say, we will see if we can get another episode at some point, um, just with Q&As, because you people were firing them off tonight, and I'm sure if I put some messages out there on social media, then we can get a whole list of questions which would be lovely because so often they feed one into the other, don't they? Because it is just one, we're dealing with a person in their ecosystem and everything kind of ties in. So definitely, yeah. really yeah. nice. Um, have you got, so you're running, have you got anything coming up? Are you training for anything particular? Where are you at the moment? I'm not training for anything particular at the moment. I'm all, I'm kind of focusing on my cycling at the moment. Um, oh, right. So I just cycled to, well, I cycled from London to Amsterdam recently. So I'm oh, right, just working that. up to the next challenge. <laughs> Fantastic. Great to hear. Okay. Well, thank you again for your time. Um, no problem. It's been great. Thank you for having me. 
if people, if you uh, in, uh, enjoyed what you heard tonight and you thought, oh, I wish I'd been there, I wish I could have asked some questions directly to the guest, then all you need to do if you listen to the podcast is see if you're free at 8 o'clock, that's um, UK time, so GMT plus one, I think, at the moment, and head along to the Sports Therapy Association YouTube channel or follow um, UK underscore STA and across social media. And obviously, I put out loads of adverts and information on what's coming up. And um, maybe, yeah, we could see you next week for our guest, whoever that may be. Um, look out on social media if you'd like to see who that guest is. But for now, um, Faye, if you could stay where you are for a second, I'm just going to say goodbye to the Loud Lounge and shut it down. Um, thank you, everyone, for joining us. Thanks, everyone, in the Live Lounge. I've pinned those questions. I've copied and pasted them. Don't worry. I've got a plan for them. So they will be answered. Um, thanks, everyone, for joining us. Um, and hopefully we will see some of you next week on the Sports Therapy Association podcast. Take care. You're listening to the Sports Therapy Association podcast, putting evidence back into soft tissue therapy.